So, uh, listen, I, um, we uh, started Lent this week, and that started on Ash Wednesday this past, and uh, so some of you, you know, didn't grow up in that tradition, but it represents the 40 days leading up to uh, Good Friday, and so the church has traditionally used this season to reflect and prepare for the commemoration of the day that our Savior hung on a cross. And we think about that. And so a theme that we want to focus on, and, or, or when, when, when you think of the cross, what we want you to think of is God's deep mercy. Deep mercy. And, and for this reason, Zach and I, we, we decided we're going to teach through the book of Jonah in this Lenten season. And, and Jonah is actually going to help us contemplate the, the depth and the height and the width of this mercy that we're talking about. Now, some of you might say, oh, hold up, Garcia. Uh, I don't see the connection. See, Jonah gets a little bit of notoriety, doesn't it? Um, it gets a lot of play in our children's ministry. And, uh, but perhaps it gets even more notoriety from skeptics. I mean, really? A fish, a big fish swallowing a man, really, right? Um, let me just say that although a big fish might be in the middle of this story, it's not about a fish. The fish just gets a few verses, you guys. And if you're a little bit skeptical, I would just invite you, like, just suspend your judgment. Just suspend it for a little bit. Because I really believe that this book can break your heart wide open to the mercy that your heart really needs, and it does. So let me kind of set this up since this is the first sermon in the sermon series, uh, and then we're going to jump right into chapter one. So Jonah, you guys, is a part, it's, it's put in the part of the Bible in the Old Testament that's nestled in with the prophets, the prophets. So, so for, if, you, if you are familiar with the Old Testament prophets, uh, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, those books kind of read a certain way. They kind of just talk straight at you, if you will. But then you get to Jonah in the prophets, and it's a story. It's a story. It's a, actually a living parable. Now, it is a true story. Jonah was a real man. Uh, he was a real person. But the story of Jonah is told in a certain way. So usually prophets just speak against a person, right? Woe to you, right? They just talk to you. But with Jonah, it's a story about this Jewish, rebellious, fugitive prophet, right? This dude who's not listening to God, and he is not who he is supposed to be. So usually, you know, you, know, usually you wouldn't expect someone to speak against you through a story. But here's the deal, is that Jonah represents the whole of Israel. So when you see Jonah, think you're, it's all, he represents all of Israel. And Israel is supposed to see themselves then in the actions of Jonah. And so what we're going to find is this really big critique. So listen carefully. If there's this parable between Israel as the people of God and then a with, with, with the church and the people of God, if there's a critique for them, then there's a critique for us. So where's the deep mercy in that, Garcia? Well, God is actually going to skillfully kind of open up our hearts. See, what we're going to see with Jonah is that there are two ways to run from God. Listen carefully. You can, uh, you can be like the pagans 
who we're going to meet them in a little bit here in a second, who reject God, they're rebellious, they don't believe in God, they reject him, you can be lost that way. Or you can be like Jonah, who's a preacher, who's religious, who looks down on other people who don't live up to his standards. But both scenarios, they're both equally lost because both of them are keeping God at bay. Neither side wants God to intrude in their life. But listen, being religious and lost is, a way, is way more dangerous than being pagan and lost because you don't know that you are lost. So we need to listen up. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to see God's deep mercy, but first we have to understand the rebellion in, of Jonah, but we need to see it in ourselves, right? And so our study of Jonah this morning is just going to focus on two areas. If you're a note taker, first we're going to look at the danger of self-righteousness, and then we're going to look at the danger of cultural religion. So danger of self-righteousness, danger of cultural religion. And with that introduction, I just want to invite you to stand. It shows a little bit of reverence to God's word. This is the very best part of the whole sermon. We're going to read the first 16 verses. Hear now the very words of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. 
Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The grass withers, and the flowers even fade, but the word of God, these words, they will remain forever. May he bless it for all of us. Amen. You may be seated. So Jonah is, um, the book of Jonah is kind of like a play with four acts. So there's four chapters in Jonah. And so we're in the opening act, chapter one, and it's quite peculiar, isn't it? So the drama begins with God's word kind of coming out of nowhere, out of the blue to Jonah. Verse two, it says what? Arise and go to Nineveh. Nineveh. All right, so Nineveh is the capital city of Israel's biggest rival, Assyria. And these are like bad, bad people. Bad reputation. They are famous for being ruthless. Now, during the time of Jonah, the story, Assyria wasn't a huge threat, but they were starting to grow in power. Now, by the time that Jonah, this story is actually codified, put into the Hebrew Bible and, and, and teaching and being given to the people. Now, at that point, is that they were on the verge of taking over the northern kingdom. So if you'll remember, Israel breaks out to a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and Israel at this point is now going to take them out, take out the northern kingdom. So when you hear the words, Jonah, go to Nineveh, for you and I, it doesn't mean that much. But for the original audience, it made absolutely no sense, right? If God said, Jonah, Go to Nineveh, wipe it out. That, that would have made some sense. That would have made sense. But what did God say to Jonah? Look at what it says. It says, arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Translation, Nineveh is really, really bad. It's evil. But I want you to help them to repent so that they receive mercy instead of destruction. That response would have made no sense to the original audience. It's like asking, I don't know, Martin Luther King Jr. to do a Billy Graham crusade style in white settlement Texas to the KKK in 1965. Like, it's uncomfortable, you know? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Showing mercy does not make a lot of sense. Why? Because these guys haven't earned it. They haven't. They're bad. So Jonah, excuse me, Jonah hears God. He responds. That's a good start. You should always respond. But he did the exact wrong thing. So instead of going east to Nineveh, he goes straight due west as far as possible from Nineveh, which is Joppa, which is like a, a port city. When he can't go any further because there's an ocean there, he buys a ticket, gets on a boat on his way to Tarshish. So not only is he not going to Nineveh, but he's like sticking it in God's eye saying, I'm going to get really far because I'm getting on a boat, right? Now, here's the question for all of us today as we think about this text together. Jonah is a prophet. Prophets are supposed to be the mouthpiece of God, and this prophet won't listen to God. Why? Why? What's going on? Here's the answer. Jonah resented God for being merciful. Jonah sees himself as being worthy of God's mercy, but those evil people, they have done nothing. 
I mean, God, really, have you seen their social media posts? They're deplorable. Do you even know how they vote? I've seen those bumper stickers. Gross. Have you seen how they talk about wearing masks? What tools? Yuck. I want you to feel the disgust in Jonah. I want you to feel the disgust in Israel. I even want you to feel it in your own heart when you see God's deep, unearned mercy go to people that you don't like. So what's really interesting is what happens next. So Jonah gets on a boat with a bunch of pagan sailors, and he copes with his stress by taking a nap. Now, this isn't unheard of. You know, uh, Kim McIntyre, I know you're watching online, but there's this, like, like with this hot water heater in her house, a bus, water's going everywhere, stressful situation, Luke's doing everything. And what does Kimbo do? She just takes a nap, falls right asleep. That's how you deal. That's one way to do it. That's what he did, man. And, you know, for Jonah... The added benefit, the added benefit of a nap is that you don't have to socialize with those morally repugnant people. Now, remember the plot line, the plot dynamic. Jonah is just as lost as the pagan sailors. So verse 4 says, At a great wind comes upon the sea, and these seasoned sailors are just sure they're going to die. They're throwing everything off the ship. They're trying to keep the thing afloat, and there's Jonah just snoozing it out. And with a touch of irony, the pagan sailors play the role of God's mouthpiece. Verse 6, call out to your God. Maybe he will be merciful. (laughs) Maybe he'll be merciful and we won't all die. So they cast lots. All the signs indicated that Jonah was the reason for the storm. They still didn't want to murder him, but ultimately he insisted Because Jonah knows that all of this was about him. So what is God looking for? What would have made it better? The right response would have been repent, make sacrifices, make vows to the Lord. And that came, but not from Jonah. Verse 16 tells us that the pagan sailors are the one who did that. It's the pagan sailors who ultimately repent, make sacrifices, and make vows to the Lord. All the wrong people are doing what Jonah, the religious one, is supposed to be doing. Jonah is a self-righteous religious failure, and they just hurl him into the sea. And again, what makes sense here then, based on all the details, is for Jonah to sink to the bottom of the sea and die. That would have made sense. Or you hurl them over and sharks eat them. That also would have made a lot of sense. It's not what happens. The big fish, which is coming, represents God's big mercy. Now listen, this mercy that we're starting to to explore, if you're listening carefully, it should stop you dead in your tracks. Because we need to think about the risk that you and me might be more like Jonah than we care to admit. So in my pastoral experience, 
people who express gospel mercy and gospel compassion to strugglers, to sinners, to people who are just in the, just in the, you know, in the ditches, to show any kind of compassion is like you're accused of being complicit with their behaviors. Like how did evangelical culture get to a place where compassion is tantamount to being complicit? It's because we've developed this culture of self-righteousness. Listen, you can actually really and truly love people who you don't agree with. Did you know that? That you can love them and not love their behaviors? That's possible. It's clearly difficult for us to understand. And the reason why we're so comfortable just identifying all the other bad people is because we're really enamored with our own moral performance. We don't think that we might be the bad people. (laughs) We feel superior to others. And as a result, when God tells us to go to Nineveh, we're totally dumbfounded. (laughs) Well, listen carefully. Trinity, God, your God, is uncomfortably merciful. Just as he said to Jonah and just as he says to Israel, just as he says to us today, if you belong to me, you exist for them. That is your mission. I don't care if you don't like them. I don't care if you disagree with their lives. You and I cannot be exhausted by sinners who are in process. Don't grow weary. You and I can't be so proud of ourselves that we stop caring about the people who are unlike us. Do not resent God's deep mercy. Jonah thought he was better than the Ninevites, but Jonah was lost. What about you? What about you? So this brings me to my second area of focus. So we looked first at the danger of self-righteousness. Let's consider the danger of cultural religion. So remember, this is a living parable. It's real. It's true. But as you read this, the the drama of uh, of the book of Jonah, Jonah becomes both the protagonist and the antagonist. So Jonah, right, he, he exemplifies the nation of Israel's twisted soul. Now, why do I call it twisted? So just like Israel, you guys, Jonah believes in God. He does. Jonah is socially and civically involved in church. Jonah is intellectually in agreement with Moses. Jonah agrees to the law, right? Jonah is faithfully religious, But if all of that is true, why does does Jonah flee from the God of his religion, right? How, if Jonah is super in, how can he still be lost? And the answer is, is that Jonah never had a personal encounter with God. See, Jonah knew God by way of his culture. He knew God by way of his family heritage. Jonah knew God in public. Jonah knew God through his religion, but Jonah did not know him for himself, right? Jonah had a cultural religion. But listen, faith 
must always become something deeply personal. Don't hear what I didn't say. I didn't say deeply private, but it must become something deeply personal. And the way that you know if God has become personal to you is if you allow him to intrude in your personal life and to tell you what to do. (laughs) That's what you don't see with Jonah, right? See, Jonah associated with God culturally, socially, but when God began to intrude on his personal life and tell him what to do, he flees, right? That's what verse 3 says. When Jonah heard directly from God, he rose to flee. Well, listen, Trinity, we... we, uh, We kind of need to pause and think about this together. So God is your creator. He's my creator. God is to be credited for everything you have. You and I have a great debt to God. You and I owe the Lord everything, don't you see? And the Lord does not simply exist as a receptacle for your private emotions. God is in charge of your public and your private life. That, that, y'all, do y'all know that? That's what Christians believe, that God's just in charge of us. That's how come you know if you've had a personal encounter with God. The day you meet the Lord, you say, Lord, all I have is yours. Take my life. Take it, Lord. I belong to you. That's how you become a Christian. <laughs> the vastness of God's authority over all aspects of our lives That vastness is by and large lost in our sort of vision of religion. See, most people, you guys, have relegated God and religion to this thing that it just brings you peace in an anxious world. It's kind of like therapeutic. Um, But if you do that, if that's how you relate to God, that'd be a grave mistake. Have you guys noticed that like over the past few decades... Uh, there's been this resurgence and this uh, popularization of Zen Buddhism and yoga. And I'm not talking about like you guys stretching and feeling good. And uh, that could be really helpful, I think. That's fine. I'm not getting all legalistic on you. I don't look great in Lululemon wear, but, you know, but, but I'm, so I'm not talking about that kind of stretching stuff. I'm talking, though, and you got to be careful with this about the religious practices that aim to put a person in touch with God by channeling peace and introspection. As if God could be conjured up through breathing techniques. Heads up, spoiler alert, God is not a genie. He's not. Back to my point, huge resurgence in this form of spirituality. Why? I would say there's kind of two reasons. One, Our culture is experiencing more anxiety and stress than at any time before in the history of the world. In the sheer volumes of stress, even in our youth, it is is manifesting itself in increased suicide, in cutting, like self-mutilization. Like, when I was a kid, that wasn't even a thing. It's a thing that really should awaken our compassion. But also, like, fear like even acute, illogical fears, like we're starting to see this in youth that we've never seen before. And so we live in this stress-riddled culture, and so peace and calmness is like 
gold, right? If you can get that, it's very attractive. So that'd be one of the reasons why we're seeing these kind of resurgence. But there's another one. The second reason is that our culture actually assumes and associates true spiritual connection with peace. People assume that peace is the fruit of a true spiritual encounter. And because everyone wants peace and who doesn't, those spiritual ideas are actually very desirable. When I was in St. Louis, I was mentoring this young man, and he developed a relationship with this young lady uh, who did not share his faith. It was not a Christian. And, and so he comes to me, and he tells me that he wants to marry her. And so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to love him and care for him. And I say, hey, what, you know, what would the Bible teach about, you know, making a marriage covenant with someone who doesn't share your faith? And he says, he says yeah, Ronnie, I know, I know, but I feel a lot of peace about it. I feel a lot of peace about this relationship. What's his assumption? Peace means that God supports his decisions, right? Assumes that true spiritual encounters with God engender peace. Now, let me say this right now. It's not true. All right, I'm just telling, just heads up, another spoiler alert. It's not true. Most of the time in the Bible, when people have a true encounter with God, peace is not the main adjective to describe what happened. Right? Y'all remember like Moses showing up, a bush is on fire? Like what? Paralyzing fear. No peace. Don't even get me started with like Jeremiah and Isaiah. They had to do wild stuff. I mean, I don't even have to, that's a whole other sermon. No peace. Our text, when God comes near, it came with a wild storm that scared seasoned sailors. And it resulted in them throwing Jonah off into the water. No peace. Jonah thought he knew God. He had peace in his cultural religion. But when God interrupts his peaceful existence to tell him what to do, Jonah showed his true loyalty, his true faith, and it was to himself. Jonah had a cultural religion, not a personal relationship. And listen, we... uh, we have to really understand this if we really want to know the Lord, if you really want to know him. Because the true God, the one who really exists, the one and only true God of the whole universe who made you, he wants to intrude in your life. And he's going to give you a mission. And he's going to tell you how to spend your time. And he's going to tell you how to spend your money. He's going to tell you all about your sex life. He's going to tell you about who you can love, how you should love. He's going to get involved in every part, every square inch of your life. And let him do it, y'all. Let him do it. If you don't have a God that can contradict you, then you are your own God in your own cultural religion. You got to have a God who can contradict you. That, uh, that's what we're seeing in Jonah, as he does not have a God who can contradict him. Mark Twain, famous American humorist, he says, it's not the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. It's the parts 
Or, you know, he says, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bother me. Who's in charge of you? Who's in charge of you? Although a religious person, Jonah, was in charge of Jonah. And he fled. But listen up. This is where the beauty of God's mercy is just starting. (laughs) And in Jonah's overwhelming failure, God's deep mercy shining forward. God didn't give up on Jonah. Man, that's good news for us. So let me just conclude with one just final thought here. Whatever mercy you see in this story, and we've just begun, is just an appetizer. It's just a glimpse of what Jesus will have for you. See, several centuries later, Jesus would walk the earth and really self-righteous people who were really involved in cultural religion, who were called Pharisees and scribes, they came to Jesus and they said, hey, hey, Jesus, Rabbi, show us a sign. And he says to them, listen, the only sign you are going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, when Jesus says that, he means two things by it. The first thing he means is that Jesus, like Jonah, has come to preach repentance to bad people. And he even wants the worst of us to turn and to know him. But there's a second thing he means. And Jesus says, and this was in our New Testament reading in Matthew 12, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So just as Jonah sunk and descended to the bottom of the sea, Jesus descended into actual death. And just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, Jesus would be in the tomb, would be in the earth for three days. And just as Jonah would be spit out of the mouth of the fish to live, so Jesus would come out of the tomb alive in resurrection. Don't you see? Don't you see? Jesus is the better Jonah. The sailors during the storm, man, they, they, they cried out to God. I mean, there's, there's water going everywhere. The boat's about to break up. And what did they say? Verse 14, oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. In other words, they're saying, Lord, don't let us die because of Jonah's sinful life. We threw him overboard, but do not lay on us his blood. In this Lenten season that we've just started, as we are like contemplating the cross, what we are saying is the exact inverse. We're saying, Lord, don't let us die. Why? Don't let us die because of Jesus' perfect life and death. Please, 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 we beg you, Lord, lay on us his innocent blood. There is no other way. There's no other way. Listen, you guys, Jonah had to be thrown overboard, but not Jesus. And he willingly jumped into the depths of, of, the, of death for you. For you. 
deep mercy. If there is anything that can break the spell of self-righteousness and cultural religion, it is that deep mercy. Drill that down into your hearts. Drill it down. Don't ever give up. That's what we're going to be contemplating all Lent.